Well, I don't know how many of you heard about this or if anyone actually felt it, but last Sunday, uh, there was an earthquake down in the Ording area, uh, down where our family lives. And thankfully, it was just a little one, just a 2.2 magnitude quake, so it was no big deal. But if you have ever been in a serious earthquake, you know, it's a pretty scary thing. Uh, I remember being in an earthquake uh, several years ago when I was attending Northwest Baptist Seminary in Tacoma. And it started when we were in class, and so we got up and we started heading out of the classroom. And I remember looking across the parking lot, and there's this big brick building, the, the mansion that was there at the seminary, and watching this big brick building with these big brick chimneys, and it was moving like water. And, and I thought for sure, it's all coming down. Uh, thankfully, it, it didn't. It all was fine. Um, but that was not the case in the... The recent earthquake in Mexico City, that was a magnitude 7.1 earthquake, and it caused buildings all around the city to collapse. Some estimate that over 60 structures, apartments, downtown offices were destroyed, and 155 people lost their lives in that earthquake. That's shocking. But, but the damage of the Mexico City quake actually pales in comparison to what happened in Nepal in 2015. I don't know how many of you remember that. Uh, But there in the span of two months, they were hit with both a 7.8 and a 7.3 earthquake. And Nepal was devastated. Some 8,000 people lost their lives. And more than 8 million people were affected. And and that earthquake damage, it, it didn't just hit Nepal, but also caused damage and death in the neighboring countries of India and Tibet, and Bangladesh. Uh, So that earthquake was no minor trivial event. It was life-altering for those people. It was world-shaking for them. But here's the thing. Sometimes when our world is shaken, uh, it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes, uh, put it this way, sometimes we need a little shaking. Uh, How many of you ever watch old movies? You guys fans of old movies? It's interesting, when you watch old movies, you see things that don't happen in movies anymore. For one thing, you see a lot of smoking. You don't see that much in the movies anymore. Um, You see people who are dressed to the nines just to sit around in their living room and have a conversation. And one of the things that you also don't see much anymore, a rather strange and somewhat uh, amusing phenomenon, is those scenes where somebody's getting hysterical, and so what does the other person do? They grab them, and they just start shaking them. It's like they're literally, literally trying to shake the hysteria out of that person. Like they're, they're trying to shake them into a right frame of mind. Now, here's the thing. I wouldn't encourage you to literally do that to someone. But sometimes we do need something or someone to come along and metaphorically shake us up. Sometimes we need something, some kind of event or some person to come along and shake us, whether it's out of our apathy or out of our distractions or out of our self-pity and self-absorption. Sometimes we need someone to come along and, remember the Etch-a-Sketch? Shake it up. Just kind of shake up the Etch-a-Sketch of our thinking and put us back in the right frame of mind. But sometimes we need a little more than that. Sometimes we need some world-changing shaking. We need something to come along and redefine life as we know it. Sometimes the earthquake of a a situation or person enters our life and we're never the same again. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I mean, think about those moments in your life when everything changed. 
and everything changed. For me, one of those moments was when I knew that I wanted Amy to be my wife. Now, here's the thing. We, Amy and I had known each other for years, kind of drifted in our friendship. But when she came back into my life, I knew that she was the one that I wanted to be with. She was beautiful, godly, funny, uh, and she became my best friend. And that moment that I knew, and especially the moment that she finally said yes, um, that was a moment that changed everything in my life for the better. Amen? Changed everything for the better. And the same is true of March 11, 2005, and March 5, 2008, the days that my girls were born. Any parent knows bringing home an infant is definitely an earthquake of serious magnitude. Amen, parents? But what a wonderful earthquake they are. Amen? What a wonderful earthquake they are. And, And life dramatically changed with each of my girls coming into my life, these, these brand new people who you, know, you love so much, and everything's redefined, right? Uh, orbit of life is now changed. Great earthquakes, great life quakes. However, as glorious as all three of those were, marrying Amy, having our two girls, there was a moment in my life that trumped all of those. There is one moment that has redefined and reshaped and redirected my life like no other. And that's the moment when God's grace invaded my life and he was pleased to reveal to me his son. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that should be true for every single person who calls themselves a Christian. That should be true for every single person who calls himself a Christian. Every single Christian should be able to give testimony to the world-shaking, life-changing power of the gospel. And after it shakes our lives, we should never, ever be the same. Never be the same. Now, here's the thing. That doesn't mean that every Christian can remember the exact moment when the gospel touched down in their lives. For some, you were were really young. For others, it was a process. But here's the thing. Once that shaking start, it changes. It, It redefines everything. We're different because of it. Our old confidences and our old thinking just should crumble to the ground. And something so much better is built up in its place. That's what the real gospel does. The real gospel really changes us. The real gospel changes our real lives. You see, true Christianity it is not about this moral system that we embrace. You know, one more to-do list that we add to all of the other to-do lists in our lives. And true Christianity is also not some piece of, of the jigsaw puzzle that makes us, makes us up, that, that, you know, it fits in there right next to our job and our marriage and our favorite sports teams. There's the Christianity piece that just fits in there. No, that's not the way it is. True Christianity, a true invasion of God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ is a world-shaking, life-defining reality. It changes us changes us. It truly changes us, and we're never, ever the same. We're never, ever the same. And we're going to see that this morning firsthand as we return to our study of the book of Galatians. This morning, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul talk about how the gospel shook his world, how it collapsed his self-focused confidence, and it replaced it with something so much better. So take your Bibles now and turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Let's dive into the reality of the world-shaking gospel. 
Again, the real gospel really changes us. The real gospel changes our real lives. Let's look at this from Galatians chapter 1. Now, as as you're there, uh, let me first remind you of of what's happening here in the opening chapter of Galatians. Um, This letter, as as I've mentioned, is probably one of the first uh, letters written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote it to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. And Paul, along with his fellow missionary Barnabas, had planted these churches on the first, this first missionary journey, a missionary journey recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14. But here's the thing. After Paul planted those churches, and then he, he traveled back to ascending church in Antioch, other teachers started visiting these new churches. And, and these new teachers, who were Jewish Christian missionaries like Paul, uh, they were preaching a message that wasn't like Paul's. They were trying to persuade these mostly Gentile Christians that they needed to embrace the law of Moses in order to truly be part of the people of God. They were, as will be made very clear as we get later into this letter, they were trying to add works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These new teachers were arguing that a person's acceptance by God isn't dependent on faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. Instead, they were arguing that we need to add our works to it in order to seal the deal, in order to finish the deal. That's what they were teaching these Galatians. And so right out of the chute in this letter, uh, Paul lets the Galatians know what he thinks of that kind of teaching. He makes it clear what he thinks of that kind of gospel. Look at what he writes, starting in verse 6. So he's, he's greeted them, and then look at what he says, starting in verse 6. I am astonished... That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a what? A different gospel. Then says, Paul says, not that there really is another gospel. There's only one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Anathema, condemned, damned to hell. That's some strong language, isn't it? That's some strong language by the Apostle Paul here. He, he's opening this letter and he's not beating around the bush. As I shared a couple of weeks ago, he, he's actually cut out part of the traditional greeting that would be typical of a letter written in that day so he can get right to the point. There's only one gospel that saves. Anything else... It's a damning gospel. It's a damning gospel. But that's what these new teachers were preaching. They were preaching a pseudo-gospel, a distorted gospel, a works righteousness gospel that doesn't save anyone. It's like they, they had the safety net and said, here's the safety net, jump, but there was no safety net. That's what they were doing. They were preaching a damning gospel, a gospel that doesn't save anybody. And so Paul calls down condemnation upon those false teachers. Let them be accursed, he says. And it, it's strong language. And Paul knows it. That's why he says, look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, Paul knows that he's ruffling feathers and he's stepping on toes. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Because ultimately, he isn't writing this letter to try to win the approval of people. He's writing this letter as a servant of Jesus Christ. And he wants to serve Christ by calling the Galatians out of their confusion... And into a right understanding of the true gospel. 
the real gospel. However, in order to do that, he first has to confront some attacks that these new teachers had made on him. You see, from, from what we read next and what we'll be working through this morning, it appears that the false teachers were not simply peddling a different gospel. They, they were also trying to undermine the gospel that Paul was preaching by undermining Paul himself. They were attacking the apostle Paul. They were attacking both his authority and his understanding of the gospel. They were claiming that Paul was a nobody and that this nobody was confused when it came to the gospel. And so starting here in verse 11... And running through actually the end of chapter 2, Paul gives what I'll call an autobiographical defense from verse 11 all the way to the end of chapter 2. And what Paul does is he shares testimonies from his own life in order to both defend his ministry and the gospel that he preaches. And he makes it abundantly clear that he has both the right authority and the right gospel. And he does this first by making very clear the source of his gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, and and here I want you to understand, that's not simply Paul saying, hey, I just want to pass on some info in case you guys were curious. No, this this letter is polemic in tone. It's a strong, corrective letter. So what Paul is saying here is, Let me correct your errant understanding, brothers. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. How? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins here by saying, this gospel that I preach to you, the gospel that I preach, it's not a man-made gospel. It's not man's gospel. Paul's saying it didn't originate with me. It's not a product of my own mind. I didn't come up with this through my own understanding. And here's the thing. Neither did anybody else. Neither did anybody else. The true gospel, the real gospel, it is so amazing, so staggering, so mind-blowing that no one, no human mind would ever come up with something like this. And that's not simply my opinion. That's the testimony of history. No religion has ever come up with anything like the gospel. You want to know what separates Christianity from every religion on the planet? Listen to the story about C.S. Lewis. The story goes, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated that what, if any, belief was unique about Christianity. So they gathered together, they're debating, what makes Christianity unique? And they began eliminating possibilities. The Incarnation... Well, other religions have different versions of God's appearing in human form. The resurrection, again, other religions have accounts of returns from death. So the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis, that great Christian author and thinker, wandered into the room. And he asked his colleagues, what's the rumpus about? And when he heard what they were discussing, Lewis responded simply and pointedly, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. That's what sets Christianity apart. Well, the story goes that after some discussion, the group agreed. They acknowledged that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, they said that seems to go against every human instinct. And here's the thing you don't find that in any other religion. The Buddhists, they have their, their eightfold path. The Hindus, they have their doctrine of karma. 
The Jews hold to the, the covenant. And the Muslims have their code of law. And each religion offers a way to earn approval. It's all about what you do. But only Christianity, only the real gospel, dares to make God's love unconditional. Only the real gospel preaches grace. And that's a message, as history shows, we never come up with on our own. Amen? We never come up with that on our own. So Paul makes it clear. What I'm preaching, it isn't a man-made gospel. This is not man's gospel. He also makes it clear in verse 12 that he didn't get this message from some other human source. Now here what Paul's doing is he's making clear both his apostolic authority and his right understanding of the gospel. You see, these new teachers that had come into these Galatian churches, most likely they came from Jerusalem, and they were probably claiming that Paul had had messed up or confused the true gospel. They, They were probably claiming that, well, Paul was given the true gospel by the folks there in Jerusalem, but then he lost something in transmission of it. Like, like he got it messed up. He got it confused. And so they came along to try to help that out. Paul got it confused. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever played the telephone game? You ever played that telephone game? You know, you whisper something in the ear of a person, and then it goes around the circle, everybody whispering. And it's really interesting to see how, how it ends up, how mangled that phrase uh, is when it gets back to you. Um, Keegan was telling me last week that, they were playing that recently, and he came up with the perfect phrase. It was, my little pony eats minestrone, right? <laughs> that one, I'm sure, got mangled pretty good. Uh, but I bring that up because that seems to be like the accusation being made against Paul. These other Jewish teachers were saying, well, yeah, Paul got his understanding of the gospel from other people, but then he messed it up. He got confused. He left stuff out. So he's giving you a mangled gospel. And so these teachers came to the Galatians and said, okay, we're going to add in the things that Paul left out that he got confused about. We're going to add in the Jewish elements of the gospel, like being under the Mosaic law, keeping the feasts and festivals, and especially being circumcised to be part of the people of God. They were accusing Paul of being part of this jacked up telephone game with the gospel and losing important elements in the process. But look at what Paul says here. Paul's point here is, I wasn't part of some messed up telephone game with the gospel. Instead, when it came to the gospel, Paul says, I had a direct line. I had a direct line. He didn't receive his understanding of the gospel from Jerusalem or from any of the other apostles like Peter or John or even simply by reading the Old Testament. Now, later on, Paul's going to talk about meeting with Peter and how he did go to Jerusalem. And Paul was an Old Testament scholar par excellence. But he didn't get his understanding of the gospel from those other sources. He got it through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Paul, like all of the other apostles, had seen the risen Christ. And that revelation was the source of his gospel. That revelation was a world-shaking moment for the apostle Paul. You see, Paul's saying here, this gospel that I'm preaching to you, it wasn't something that I came up with in my own mind. This isn't something I was confused about. Instead, it's something that radically changed my life. And that's what Paul goes on to explain next here to the Galatians. He goes on to show them how the real gospel really changed him. This gospel that was under attack by these these Jewish false teachers was the very gospel that had attacked Paul's life and radically changed him. Again, Paul didn't create the gospel. Instead, he was attacked by it, and he'd been shaken by it to his very core. 
And here's the thing. Paul was shaken by this gospel in the midst of of living a life of self-confident, self-reliant pursuit of the Mosaic law. This gospel had come and it attacked Paul in the midst of living in that state of, of, I've got this confidence. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, I can do it. I've got it. And that, brothers, that's what the gospel does. It comes and it attacks our, I've got this confidence. Tears that down and it replaces it with something so much better. Amen? Something so much better. Now, as we start to look at Paul's testimony here and work through verses 13 to 16, I want you to do something. I want you to watch the nouns. Watch the nouns here in verses 13 to 16. Specifically, I want you to watch the nouns that are the subjects of the verbs in, in these verses here. And notice how Paul starts. He starts with himself as the subject. Verses 13 and 14, he's the one doing the action. He begins by saying, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how... I persecuted the church of God violently and implied I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So who's the one doing the action here? It's all Paul. It's all Paul. Here Paul's telling us about himself. And he's showing us really here that he was the the poster child for the I've got this type of confidence. He was the poster child for self-reliance and works righteousness. Now, what I want to do here is I want to show you where Paul's self-reliance, his self-confidence, his I've got this attitude, where it led him. And so in order to do that, uh, I want to approach these two verses, 13 and 14, backwards. I want us to start by looking at verse 14, and then we'll examine verse 13. So look at verse 14. Look what Paul says here. The first thing he says is that he was, uh, he was at the head of the class. Uh, When it came to living life under the Mosaic law, when it came to trying to be a faithful Jew, Paul was at the head of the class. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So Paul's saying, I was the star pupil. I was the 4.0 student. He would have been the valedictorian, the the prodigy among his peers. And here, this is the thing. Paul was a star pupil, not in a minor school, but in one of the best schools. Over in Acts chapter 22, Paul says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was also part of the Jewish ruling council, part of the Sanhedrin. And according to Acts chapter 5, he was a teacher of the law held in honor by all of the people. So being educated by Gamaliel, that was the best education that Judaism had to offer, especially of the Pharisee sect. And Paul says here, I was thriving under his education. He says, I was filled with zeal, he says, for the tradition of my fathers. He was zealous in this pursuit. Now, as we talk about Paul's zeal here, I just want to make sure that we're clear. Zeal is not necessarily a bad thing. Being zealous is not, sometimes in our culture it comes across that way. All those people are zealots. or they're zealous. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, over in... Uh, Titus chapter 2, Paul says this. He says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So there's supposed to be a zeal to us in our Christian life. That's part of the reason Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us from lawlessness so that we would be zealous for good works. So zeal in and of itself is not a bad thing. 
But here's the thing. It's all about what drives us in that zeal. It's all about what drives us. Over in Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. He's speaking about his fellow Jews. And he writes, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, they're not being driven by the right understanding, the right knowledge. Paul continues there in Romans chapter 10. He says, these Jews who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, he says, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And then listen to this. For he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. You see, they had this zeal, but it was a zeal for proving their own righteousness. It was a quote-unquote zeal for God that manifested itself in trying to work for and prove our own righteousness instead of accepting the righteousness of God that comes through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Paul goes on to say there in Romans chapter 10, for Christ, listen to this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, trying to work for righteousness to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. But that's, that's where they were. They were trying to work for righteousness. They were ignoring the righteousness of God that comes through faith and trying to prove their own righteousness. And that's where Paul was. That's where Paul was. He was trying to to work for righteousness. He was trying to prove his righteousness. And he was extremely zealous in that pursuit. He was so zealous in it, he was passing up everybody else. He was at the head of the class. But Paul says here that this zeal, this I've got this confidence, it led him to an awful place. Now I want to go back to verse 13. Look at where it led him. You see, by trusting in himself... And trusting in his ability to please God, Paul ended up, as he says in verse 13, doing what? Persecuting the church of God violently and trying to destroy it. That's where it led him. Paul's self-confident zeal led him to become a violent extremist. Over in Acts chapter 7, we read that Paul stood and watched as an angry Jewish mob killed a Christian named Stephen for simply preaching the gospel to them. Think about it. That angry mob took stones and they hurled them at Stephen until their blows took the very life of that preacher of the gospel. You know, I say this all the time. I'm going to say it again. These things really happened. And I want to ask you, could you imagine standing there not, not I mean, it would be shocking to see it in a movie, right? But can you imagine standing there in person and watching that happen? Watching a group of people out of their anger crush a man's skull and his bones and his body with rock after rock after rock until the very life went out of him. Can you imagine standing there and watching that? But Acts 7 says that Paul not only stood there and watched that, he held the coats for the guys who were throwing the stones. And then in Acts chapter 8, it tells us that Paul was pleased. He gave his approval to the actions of that mob. And then he followed suit. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout all the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul, which is Paul's Hebrew name, 
was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Again, really happened. Threw them into prison where they would suffer and some of them die. Not because they were violent criminals. Simply because they believed in Jesus. Simply because they embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply because they preached salvation by grace alone. What I want you to say is Paul hated that message. Paul was at a place where he hated that message. He was ravaging the church because of that message. As he said here, he persecuted the church of God violently. Now, Paul uses a word here in the original language, a word that the ESV translates as violently, which really means beyond measure. It means to an extraordinary degree. And so as Paul looks back on where his zeal led him, where his I've got this attitude led him, he says, it led me to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I look back and I couldn't even measure it. It was so bad. To an extraordinary degree, violence beyond measure. He actually says here that I tried to destroy the church of God. Can you you imagine that, trying to just wipe out a group of people? That's where he was. That was his goal. That's what he was after. Total annihilation of those proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And the verb that Paul uses here, the verb that's translated as destroy, portheo, it's a verb that was used to speak of pillaging a city. Of sacking a city. So the army surrounds it. The walls get pulled down. Everybody goes in and just takes everything and leaves nothing. Paul says, that's the way I was approaching the church. That's the way I was approaching the people of God. He was pillaging and ravaging, think about this, the very bride of Christ. His his zeal for his own self-righteousness had turned him violently and brutally against grace. It had turned him violently and brutally against the people of God. It had turned him violently and brutally against that which Christ loves in a way that he loves nothing else. Christ gave his life for the church. And here's Paul trying to destroy it. There was Paul in his zeal for God, resting in his own wisdom, and his own understanding, attacking the very beloved of Christ. In his zeal for God, that's where he'd ended up. Because it was resting Where? his own self-confidence, his own self-righteousness. And brothers and sisters, that should stand as a very powerful lesson to all of us. When we depend upon ourselves, we can end up in some very dangerous and very damaging places. When we rest in our own wisdom and we rest in our own ability in our relationships with other people and especially in our relationship with God, we can do some serious damage. Years ago, uh, I knew a couple who, who professed to be Christians, but they were, they were struggling in their marriage. So they decided that they would open up their marriage. They decided it would add a little spice to their marriage to open up their marriage bed. That's where their wisdom led them. Absolute foolishness. They're no longer married. You know, big surprise. But here's the thing. I knew them well. They got to that place after years of resting in their own wisdom, feeding those little lusts, And not walking in the freeing grace of God. And here's the thing. Those destructive realities, 
they can happen to us in a variety of areas. A variety of areas. It, it can happen to you parents who, when we get so enamored with the latest child psychology, but we ignore what the Word of God says. Does the Bible have a bit to say about parenting? Ever check out the book of Proverbs? And guess what? It's better than whatever you're going to find on Facebook. But we, but we rest in the wisdom of this world, and then, man, it does damage not just to us as parents, but to our children. Because we're not resting in God. It can happen to you, especially speak to the guys, the men, the husbands, the fathers. You men, as you focus so much energy on building your career, I want to provide stability for my family. But if you're not doing that in submission to the word of God, you're in big, big trouble. If you're not spending time spiritually nourishing your wife, spiritually shepherding your children, and letting yourself be fed daily by the grace of God's word, you're headed in a dangerous direction. Psalms 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Labor in vain. And this vanity is nowhere more apparent than when we try to put all of our hope and confidence, our standing before God, in our own efforts. Talk about vanity. When, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. When we live in that place of telling ourselves, God only accepts me based on what I do. Are you ever tempted to say that? God only accepts me based on what I do. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We're not living by the gospel. Amen? We're not living by the gospel. Instead, we're living by a self-confidence. We might even put it under our Christian pursuit. But we're living by self-confidence that will ruin us and leave us empty. And Paul knew this. Paul knew this because he had lived this. He'd been the poster child for the I've got this mentality. And it led him to a place of attacking the very bride of Christ. But God is so gracious. He's so gracious. I mean, think about it. God should have struck down Paul for his wickedness. I mean, he should have cast him aside forever for, here's this man who's taking the word of God and using it to justify, dragging off men and women from their home, throwing them in prison and plotting murderous, you know, these murderous mobs. God should have cast him aside forever. But he didn't. Instead of giving Paul what he deserved, what did he give him? Grace. Paul rescued, God rescued Paul from Paul by giving him grace. You see, what happens here is God attacked Paul's I've got this confidence with the Gospels. Christ's already done this declaration. Look again at the text. Look at what happens here. Remember I told you to watch the, watch the nouns. Look at what happens here in verses 15 and 16. Look at the changes in the nouns. Paul has just been talking about all the things that he did and where it led him. But now he introduces a new actor into his testimony, a new subject for these verbs. He writes, look at it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace when, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Who's Paul talking about? Who's the one doing the action in those verbs? Is it Paul? No. God is the actor. God is the subject of each of these verbs. And here's the thing. Paul's writing it this way because he knows that it was God who invaded his life. And God invaded his life with the world-shaking revelation of Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul explains this. Look at the way that Paul explains this. And I want you to think about this 
Specifically, in light of the, the position of these Jewish teachers and their quote-unquote gospel that said, our standing by God, before God is based on the things that we do for God. Look at where Paul starts. He starts with the grace of sovereign election. But when he who had set me apart, when? Before I was born. What does that mean? Simply put, it means that before Paul could do one thing, one work, One bit of human effort, one zealous pursuit. God had already purposed an eternity past to show him grace. You see, Paul's making clear here, it was never about what I did. I didn't earn my salvation. It was all of grace. And Paul continues making this point by saying that God, who had set him apart before he was born, called him by grace. I love this. Paul, God had called Paul. He had summoned him. That's what this word means. He summoned him. And he didn't summon him to do this and do that in order to earn my favor. It wasn't a summons for law-keeping, for righteousness. It wasn't a summons to rest in your own efforts, Paul. It wasn't a, a summons to lean in your own understanding, Paul. It wasn't a summons to, Paul, put forth maximum effort so that you will gain my approval. Instead, it was the summons of what? Grace. God called him by his grace. It was the gospel of grace that had come to Paul. As God called that zealous, legalistic, violent extremist to lay down his arms and see that his only hope, our only true unshakable confidence is not us. It's not us, it's Jesus Christ. So Paul says, this one who set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, look at the text, was pleased to reveal what? His son to me. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. And that changed everything. That changed everything for Paul. You know the story? Paul was on the Damascus road, and what was he going to do? He's just going to go see the city of Damascus? No, he was on his way to find more Christians, drag them off, and put them in the prison. He was on his way to persecute the church. He was on his way to try to destroy the church. But as he approached that city of Damascus, Paul saw the truth. He saw the truth. As Acts 9 tells us, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. Imagine that. You, are think, you think, I'm right in the will of God. I'm going to go take care of these people. Bam, it's light from heaven that drives you to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not my people, me? And you can hear Paul in this next line just cowering. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice answered, imagine how this must have just rocked his world. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And in that moment, A moment determined before Paul was ever born. A moment determined in eternity past. God's gracious summons came to Paul through the revelation of the Son. Paul saw the truth. Jesus was, is the Christ, the Son of God. Paul saw in that moment... That this message of grace, this message, that, said, this message that, that says you can't work for your salvation, 
This message that, that Paul had hated because it was, a, it was against everything that he was for. He was living for his own righteousness. In that moment, he saw that that message that says salvation isn't about what you can do, he saw that it was true. That it was all true. And here's the thing. He realized that as he saw the heart of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what, what is the heart of the gospel? What is the heart of the gospel? Is it that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and deserve condemnation? That's true, right? But that's not the heart of the gospel. Is the heart of gospel eternal life, being with those that we, we've loved and lost and being with God forever? Again, that's all true, but that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is right here in this verse. Look at it. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. That is the heart of the gospel. God is pleased to reveal his son to us. And as we see him, he who lived for us and died for us and rose for us and is coming again for us and to make all things new, as we see him, we see the good news. We see the gospel. And the good news is that salvation isn't about what we do. Salvation, eternal life, rescue from condemnation, being forever with those that we, we've loved and lost, being forever with God himself. It's not about the works that we do. It's only about him. It's only about Jesus. It's only about what he has done. That's what we rest in. That's our hope and confidence. And that's the good news. Jesus, the finished work of Christ. It's not an I've got this confidence. Instead, it's a Christ has already done it. Assurance. And when Paul saw Jesus, when he saw the risen Christ, he knew it was all true. And that earthquake, that earthquake of grace touched down in Paul's life. And he was never the same. He was never the same. The purpose for Paul's life, his very existence was radically transformed. Look again at verse 16. Paul says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? So that I might go home and be happy in my salvation. And No, what does he say? In order that I might preach him where it was safe and comfortable among the Gentiles. I mean, think about that. Again, this really happened. What, what a dramatic change. What a dramatic change. Paul went from being an adversary of Jesus persecutor of the church, down with this gospel of grace to bring a preacher of Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the promised prophet, priest, and king. He's the Christ. It's all about him. He went from being the head of the class among a bunch of Jewish separatists, Pharisees, extremists, to being a friend of Gentiles. Now, how did the Pharisees view the Gentiles? Those Gentile dogs who don't have anything to do with them. Paul went to being, from that to being a friend of the Gentiles, loving them, serving them, joining together in life with them. He, he went from living a life zealous to prove his own righteousness to living a life leading others to rest in the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. He went from living by man-made confidence to proclaiming God-given, grace-powered assurance. And when that earthquake of grace touched down in Paul's life, when he was given that revelation of Jesus Christ, it didn't just shake Paul's world. Here's the thing. It actually changed the world. God used it. 
to change the world. I mean, think about it. Here we are some 2,000 years later, a room, probably all, if not majority, Gentiles, right? And we're a long way from Jerusalem. We're a long way from Antioch. We're a long way from Galatia. But here we are gathered together in this place. Why? Because of the gospel of grace. And we, we read throughout the New Testament, like Paul became this bulldog for grace. And it got a hold of him. He wasn't letting go. And so in letter after letter, we see him battling, fighting for the true gospel. And here we are, some 2,000 years later, in this place, studying Paul's letter where he's fighting for the gospel. And he's helping all of us 2,000 years later to understand grace. He, by the Spirit of God, 2,000 years later, is helping us all to see the real gospel really changes us. The real gospel changes our real lives. The real gospel changes our real lives. As I say that, though, I want to ask you an important question. And maybe this is a question kind of been rattling around in the back of your mind since the beginning of this sermon. The real gospel really changes us. So has the gospel, the gospel of grace, has it changed you? Has it changed you? I mean, has it really changed you? You may say, well, Ryan, I'm here today. It changed me. I'm in, I'm in church. And I'll tell you, I'm glad that you're here. But sadly, there are a lot of people, a lot of religious people in churches today. And they're there, but they're there because their hope is in themselves. They're there because it's what they're supposed to do. And they're trying to work a system, trying to follow the rules, trying to earn God's favor. Christianity is just the religious system that they're working. So why are you here? Is that why you're here? Because of what you're supposed to do? Think God will be upset with you? Trying to work a system? Or maybe say, well, Ryan, I, I know that my hope isn't in what I do. I know it's in Jesus because I remember praying the prayer. I'm glad that you remember that. But let me ask you this question. What has your life been like since praying the prayer? What has it been like since? How have you been living? Has there been change? Any difference? Or are you still living by your own wisdom? Resting in your own confidence? Still living life zealous for your own pursuits and your own efforts? You've got your fire insurance taken care of, but life is still all about you and what you do. You see, here's the thing. When we're called by grace and God is pleased to reveal to us his son, it radically changes us. We realize that life isn't about us anymore. It isn't about building our life on what we do, whether those are religious activities or secular pursuits. Instead, when we have that world-shaking revelation... We realize, as Paul did, that grace now defines our life. We're going to see this in chapter 2, verse 20, but I'll just tell you the verse now. I think you know it already. But Paul says this about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, my daily life, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not faith in me and my efforts. It's not life all about me. It's life lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, grace changes us. It changes us. 
Life stops being about me and my accomplishments. And it starts to be about delighting in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's about building our lives on what he has done, not on what we do. Building our lives on what he has done, not on what we do. And that's how the real gospel really changes us. That's how it really changes us. It rescues us from us and gives us something so much better. So the question, brothers and sisters, have you been rescued? Have you been rescued from you? Really? Have you seen the Son for who he is? And has that revelation shaken your world and redefined your life? Because that's what the gospel does. That's what grace does. That's what seeing Christ for who he is does. It really, just like we see here in Paul, it really changes us. So has it changed you? Has it changed you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess we, we need your spirit of God to be doing his work in our hearts. We need your grace of helping us to really see what we're building our life on. If we're, we're confused, if we're self-deluded, that our Christianity is about working a system, not resting in Christ. If there's been no change, help us to see that. It's because maybe we haven't met the Savior. Help us to see that the real gospel really does change us. That it rescues us from us, this confidence in self, and shows us that our only hope is Jesus Christ. So I pray for all who are here today, do that work in our hearts. Help us to see the danger, the emptiness of trying to live life for us, resting in us, where it, where it led Paul, that destructive place, and where it's led so many others. And rescue us from that. Help us to see that our only hope is the finished work of Christ alone. Help us see our only hope is the gospel. May we behold the Son for who he truly is. And that beholding his glory radically transform our lives. These things I pray in his name. Amen.